If you'd be so kind to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, we're going to jump back to the Old Testament for a few months. Have you ever noticed that uh, life has problems? Just making sure I'm talking to the right group. If you're problem-free, no, no, your wife has no problems except you. However, however, we see, we fix today's problems, and then tomorrow has a whole new batch waiting for us, right? See, if you look at your calendar on the week right now, you pull your calendar out or your outlook and you look at it and you know there's problems there. There's the ones you know about and then there's the ones that Wednesday morning pop up and surprise you. There's a whole other batch at that point in time. Somewhere in the back of our mind, there's this belief or this desire. This is the reason some people go on vacation that someday all the problems will be solved, right? Someday we'll live happily ever after and happily ever after is coming. We call it graduation day. We call it homecoming, we call it heaven. It's coming. In the meanwhile, we have problems. Some people believe that only if you follow Jesus close enough, all your problems will disappear. Now, I'm going to disabuse you of such folly immediately because today we're going to look at a very devout family, a godly family, and they have problems. They have big problems. As a matter of fact, when you read about their problems, you probably wouldn't want to trade your problems for their problems, right? You'll keep yours. So even more so today in 1 Samuel, we're going to look at a nation with problems, a nation that is rotten to the core. The nation of Israel, as we open this book, has been in a spiritual depression for 300 years. 300 years. Years. We haven't been in existence as a nation for 300 years. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is that, as always, God is working to accomplish his purposes in this nation and in ours. So let's take a look at the chronology of the period of the judges I've asked Rob to put on screen for you. Let me just give you a little perspective. The historical context of 1 and 2 Samuel takes place at the end of the period of the judges. Go back in history with me. At about 1445 B.C., God used Moses to lead the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. They were supposed to go straight into Canaan, but they disobeyed, wandered into the wilderness for 40 years. So it's about 1405 B.C., plus or minus. And Joshua, God uses Joshua to take them into the land of Canaan. If you read the book of Joshua, he conquers by God's grace and help much of the land, but there's much left to do. There's a lot of the land that remains unconquered. The next generation has got a lot of work to do. Unfortunately, the next generation failed to finish the job and they wind up living with the Canaanites. Instead of, comp instead of combating the evil in the land of Canaan, the subsequent generations of Joshua wound up compromising with the evil in the land of Canaan. So the book of Judges then records the tragic consequences of Israel's spiritual compromise with their surrounding culture. By the end of the book of Judges, the nation of Israel is virtually indistinguishable from their pagan neighbors. They're almost one and the same. Dwight L. Moody once said, the place for a ship is in the sea, but God help the ship if the sea gets into it. You get swallowed up by your culture. And that's precisely what happened to the nation of Israel in the period of the judges. And that's precisely the risk that the Church of Jesus Christ has had throughout the centuries is becoming compromised with the culture. So the book of Judges really records the tragic uh, cycles of disobedience that Israel goes through. As a matter of fact, this cycle is repeated over and over and over. Israel gets seduced. 
neglects God and pursues sin. God then disciplines Israel generally by sending a foreign invader, right? He sends a foreign invader to discipline the land. Puts them in subjection, servitude, slavery. Israel cries out to God for deliverance. God raises up a judge. That's why we call it the book of Judges. Who delivers Israel from the invader. As long as the judge is alive, they follow the Lord. When the judge dies, what do they do? They go back to the pig trough, right? They go back to commit spiritual adultery. God sends another foreign invader to them. This cycle goes on over and over and over and over and over. Talk about slow learners. By the way, we are at risk of the same cycle in our own lives. Now, none of you look 300 years old, but I can run through this cycle in an afternoon. Right? Disobedience, problem, repent or rebel, obedience, disobedience. I mean, so we look at Israel and we go, man, brain dead, spiritually brain dead. That's us. Very easy for us to follow that trap. So as we look at this, it's not just them, it's about us. Now Samuel, the book of Samuel was originally written as one book. It was just known as the book of Samuel. Around 300 BC, 70 Jewish scholars in Alexandria translated it. It's called the Septuagint. That's when they translate from Hebrew into Greek and they divide it into two volumes. So when you look at the book of 1 Samuel, it opens with the birth of Samuel. We don't know the exact time frame of Samuel's birth, but it's probably between 1120 and 1105 BC, somewhere in that 15 year period. Second Samuel ends with the death of King David and that Solomon's about ready to take the throne. Now we know Solomon's coronation was in 971 BC. So first and Samuel together cover about 150 years. So we're looking at right at right around 150 years in this particular book or books. The books of Samuel really record the transition from Israel as from a loose confederation of tribes to a central government from the period of the judges to the period of a monarchy. So this nation is in massive transition during this period of time. Uh, most of 1 Samuel is probably written by Samuel himself, but if you read the book in advance, you'll know in chapter 25 he dies. So anything after that was obviously written by somebody else. Clearly, the book of Samuel probably was written somewhere after the division of the kingdom because when you read 2 Samuel, there's all kinds of references to Israel and Judah as separate entities. Well, that division didn't take place until 931, Rehoboam. So probably the book was compiled sometime after this kingdom of the split in two. These two volumes, 1 and 2 Samuel, have three critical human characters. We have Samuel who's the last judge and the first prophet. He lived about 1105 to 1030 BC, 80 plus years. You have Saul, the people's choice for king who reigned from 1051 to 1011, 40 years. And then you have David, God's choice as king who ruled from 1011 to about 971. The central figure of this, these two volumes is almighty God himself. He is the central figure, the Lord of hosts. Now, the key purpose of the book of Samuel is really to record what happens to people, what happens to nations when they trust and obey God or when they distrust and disobey him. When you read the book of Joshua, <clears throat> it really demonstrates the positive aspects of obeying and trusting God. When you read the book of Judges, it really flips it. Judges really takes a look at the negative side if you disobey and distrust God. 
Now, something to remember, you must never forget, we must never forget, that the disobedience of man will never thwart the purposes of God. The disobedience of man will never thwart the plan of God. What happens in Beijing, Moscow, or Washington, D.C. will never thwart the plan of God, ever. We need to understand that when you read the headlines. Man's disobedience will never dethrone God. God will accomplish, is going to accomplish, is now accomplishing his purposes through obedient people, through obedient nations, through disobedient people, through disobedient nations. Even Satan in hell will bring glory to God by demonstrating God's justice and holiness. God's purposes and reign will always be realized, but it's imperative to remember that my conduct creates consequences. Repeat after me. My conduct creates consequences. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. Here's something you can write down. God always disciplines the disobedient. Always. Now, you may not do it on your time schedule. My idea of God disciplining the disobedient would be yesterday, except for me. You know, I, 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 I deserve grace. The rest of you guys, lightning strikes, right? You know, the reality is it's the mercy of God that restrains his judgment to give us an opportunity to repent. That is the mercy of God. If you are part of God's family, however, God will always discipline you when you disobey. Gary Enrig wrote a great book, Hearts of Iron, Feet of Clay, about the book of Judges, and he, he, there's a phrase in there that really stuck with me. He said, the Lord will never allow his people to sin successfully. The Lord will never allow his people to sin successfully. He loves us too much to allow us to indulge in compromise and sin without consequences. That's why choices create consequences. When we make sinful choices, we get bad consequences. That's part of God restraining evil in our lives. So the book of Samuel illustrates this principle. I've asked Rob also to pop up a map of Israel during this period of time. Now this is not modern Israel, this is Israel during the period of the Judges. Most of the events that you're going to read about in this book took, really took place in Israel's central highlands. The hill country of Ephraim in the north and the hill country of Judah in the south. This whole arena is about 90 miles long. Now this little range of hills here that runs really from Gibeah way in the south up to Mount Tabor in the north. The average elevation is between 1,500 and 3,500 feet. So it's hills, it's not the Rockies, but it's hill country. All the major cities of Samuel are in this area. You'll see Shiloh, that's where the ark was. Uh, Bethel, Ramah, Gibeah, Bethlehem, Hebron, Jerusalem. During this period of time, you need to understand that the empires of the world, the Assyrians, uh, the uh, Babylonians, the Egyptians, were really not projecting power into Israel. So Israel was pretty much an isolated enterprise. The two geopolitical forces that impacted Israel during this period of time was the Philistines on the west. You can see Philistia on the west, on the coast there. That's now known as the Gaza Strip. And then across the river, you had, of course, the Ammonites on the east. So those were the two major geopolitical powers that had an impact on Israel during this period of time. The moral climate during this period was abysmal. When Samuel was born, the priesthood was corrupted. Idolatry was epidemic. Judges were dishonest. And God literally had stopped speaking to the nation. 
No more word from God. God is still working to accomplish his purposes, even though the nation is rotten. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramatham Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroboam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tofu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. Now, Ramatham literally means from the two heights or the two hills. So there's a couple of hills here. Most people just call it Rama. That was the city. And you can look on the map and see that it was just north of Gibeah, which was just north of Jerusalem. It was about five miles away from Jerusalem. Five miles. Walking miles. Elkanah means God has created. He's a Levite by birth. So he's of the tribe of Levi who could minister to the Lord. And he lived in the tribal area of Ephraim, which is the northern part. Verse 2 gives you a little more detail about this family. And he had two wives. You know, we could talk the entire lesson about those five words. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. One of the nicest women that I know is an almost 90-year-old named Penina. I never could figure out why her mother called her Penina. But she is a sweetheart. Here's the principle for verse 2. Prayerless solutions generally create bigger problems. No children was a big problem. Two wives was a bigger problem. <laughs> See, polygamy was tolerated, but it was never part of God's original plan of one man, one woman for life. Jacob, wonderful Jacob, even married two sisters. That's a recipe for heartache, headache, and backache, you know. Hannah means grace. And you're going to see grace in this woman's life. It was Elkanah's first wife. Elkanah probably married Penina. That name, by the way, means ruby or pearl because Hannah was childless. So Hannah's wife, number one. Penina's wife, number two. Penina's probably younger than Hannah and she's probably pretty. Elkanah had enough money to support two wives. Have you ever noticed that polygamy, you know, kind of demands wealth? You really don't want to do polygamy unless you got a lot of wealth. Um, serial monogamy also requires wealth, right? We have people that uh, have been divorced multiple times, God forbid. It's heartbreak. It is very expensive on lots of levels. In that culture, you didn't get divorced, but you could practice the equivalent of it by having two women in one home, which was probably more difficult. And I don't mean to belittle divorce. Divorce is just heartbreak and beyond words. But just to give you some context here, Elkanah had enough money to support two wives. What he didn't have was enough faith to trust God to solve his problem. See, Elkanah had a problem. Elkanah's initial problem was no children. In that culture, a family's inheritance a family's posterity, and your social security depended on male descendants. There was no government to take care of you. Your children were going to take care of you in your old age. If you didn't have any children, you didn't have any social security. You didn't have any posterity. When you got old, you were in deep trouble. So that's when Elkanah decided what he really needed was another woman to bear him children because Hannah couldn't. That's not what he really needed. What he really needed was God's solution, not his solution. See, Elkanah's solution created a bigger problem. You ever notice how our solutions without God's guidance can make a bigger mess than we had before? Right? Unfortunately, that's true. In that culture, children were considered a sign of God's blessing. Now, we don't value children in this culture nearly as much as they did. We just don't. 
Children, in many cases in our culture, are viewed as an inconvenience because we think the government's going to take care of us. We're now finding out that if you don't have a generation to pay Social Security, who's going to take care of your Social Security payments in 20 years if there's no generation behind you to make those payments? So you can't violate the laws of demography, and we're finding that out. But in that culture, if having children was a blessing, then barrenness was a curse from God, and you were considered to be in sin if you didn't have children. If you believe that God was cursing your first wife with barrenness because of her sin, it's a whole lot easier to rationalize taking a second wife, right? Multiple women in the Bible, by the way, struggle with childlessness. You know this. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, the mother of Samson, the mother of John the Baptist, Elizabeth, right? All of them struggled with infertility. Here's the, one of the points. In every single case, God had a bigger purpose in mind than just a successful pregnancy. In every single case, God always had a larger purpose. God has a larger purpose behind your personal problems today. Whatever your personal issues are, God has a larger purpose than just the relief of that personal problem. Verse 3. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in, in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. So every year they did the Feast of Tabernacles, September, October. They took an annual pilgrimage up to Shiloh where the Ark of the Covenant was. Every male Israelite was required to attend, bring a sacrifice. Shiloh was about 15 miles north of Jerusalem. And it, at this time, it was the central sanctuary for the nation because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the tabernacle. Verse 4, And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Now, Elkanah, to his credit, was a very faithful worshiper of God. Once a year, both families would travel to Shiloh and sacrifice and worship. They would bring an animal as part of that sacrifice. After the animal was slaughtered on the altar, a portion of that was given to God as a burnt offering, the fat and portions of the carcass. The rest of that animal then was to be eaten by the family that had brought the sacrifice. So it's kind of a feast, right? So a portion of the sacrifice was burnt as a burnt offering. A portion you ate, you had a feast. So it was kind of like having dinner with God. That was part of the worship process at that point in time. And Elkanah would serve both his families. He would divide the portion, the carcass up after they uh, roasted it and divide it up between the, the, each wife and their children. And it's pretty obvious that Elkanah didn't have any problem with children at this point in time. It says that Penina had many children, right? When it says all her sons and all her daughters, you kind of get the feeling that there's a big family. Penina has a big family with Elkanah. And Hannah has none. If you have more children, you have more status, and you have more security. So she was riding high. The problem was, like Jacob, who did Elkanah love more? <coughs> who did Elkanah love more? Hannah. Hannah. Clearly he loved Hannah more than he loved. Do you think Penina had that figured out? Yeah. I think she had that figured out. It's pretty obvious. This is a formula for bickering, for jealousy, for rivalry, for insecurity. Verse 6 even uses the word. Her rival, right? This is the nice thing. This is a home, right? In the home. 
however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, we're going to get to something here that's very important to understand. Why was Hannah not pregnant? Ah, it says it. It's actually written down right in front of you. It says the Lord had closed her womb. Now, it doesn't say why God had closed her womb, right? Does God always explain why he does what he does in your life? No. Seldom. He didn't hear either. Here's the principle. Man, I struggle with this one. God has eternal purpose and personal blessing in every, that's what I'm struggling with, Every problem he permits you to experience. I was going to say every problem he blesses you with, but I figured I'd be stoned with tomatoes, so I thought I'd... Anyway, God has eternal purpose and personal blessing in every problem he permits you to experience. Nothing crosses your desk without crossing his desk first. God has purpose in everything he does, including... Pain. Nothing is random in God's kingdom. See, we often misunderstand God's purposes. Penina was convinced that Hannah was childless because God was cursing her for sin. Hannah was brokenhearted. Elkanah was helpless. And you're going to see the high priest Eli was clueless. The reality was that God was not only going to bless Hannah with a son, but he was going to use that son to turn the entire nation back to God. God's got a bigger purpose than this problem, right? The son named Samuel became the last judge and the first prophet of, G of Israel, and he anointed the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. If Hannah had not been childless, she would have not prayed in desperation and dedicated her firstborn son to God's service as a prophet. No one knew God's plan at the time. That's why we walk by faith today. Now, you look at your problems. I look at my problems today. And we say, God, if you only explain to me what your eternal purpose behind the problem was, what would you do if you knew? You wouldn't trust him because you wouldn't have to, right? You would say, either thank you for telling me or God, I have some advice for you. Let's tweak that plan a little bit. Your plan for my future involves too much discomfort, too much suffering. Can't you pick an easier way, right? That's what we would do. So God tells us what we need to do and only what we need to know. But at the time, Hannah didn't have a clue. Penina didn't have a clue. Elkanah didn't have a clue. And Eli didn't have a clue. She was not getting pregnant. And God had a purpose much farther beyond than just having a son. And they didn't know it at that point in time. You're going to find out that Hannah walked by faith. Verse 7. And it happened year after year. So often as she went up to the house of the Lord that she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Now this is a family fight. And this family fight takes place when? During the holidays. Just like with you, right? I mean, every year this is a big celebration. The Feast of Tabernacles. Man, you're going. You're going to party, right? You're bringing a big sacrifice. You're going to go to the temple, the tabernacle. You're going to have fun. You're going to share a big meal together. And it turns into a slugfest every time. See, most of the year, by the way, I think these women lived in separate tents. I do. I think Penina had her tent. And I think Hannah had her tent. And if Elkanah was smart, he'd have a pup tent about a mile away. 
can you imagine? I mean, trying to live, it's very confusing. If you really want to get a dose, look at Jacob. He had two wives and two concubines, and his life was a mess. So for the most part, they were separate, but during this annual pilgrimage, they had to be together, right? Penina's insecurity over Elkanah's love for Hannah led her to verbally taunt Hannah because obviously barrenness was considered a curse of God for sin. So it's very likely that Penina was accusing Hannah of sinning, just like Job's friends, right? If you only weren't sinning, you would get pregnant. Yada, 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 right? It seems as though every year Penina had another child. I mean, they just kept coming, right? Every year. And every year Penina had another child, Hannah's pain monitor went up and up and up and up and up. And every year Penina's bitchiness went up and up and up and up and up, right? So this thing is escalating. This family dynamic is escalating. I can hear it. Hannah, God is cursing you. By the way, you have an eating disorder, right? You're depressed, you're codependent, you have low self-esteem, you need to go down and see a therapist, right? Now, to her credit, Hannah did not respond in kind. But you have to know her pain load is increasing. And in verse 8, you see this family dynamic spiraling out of control. It's not getting better. Verse 8, then Elkanah, her husband, with no insight, <laughs> asked her three questions, all of which begin with Why? Can you see where this is not going in a good direction? <laughs> Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? This is... Don't say it, Brad. Just don't say it. This is husband trying to fix it, making it worse. My father told me years ago, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Every question, you know, let's excavate a little deeper hole, right? She's sobbing. He asks her three times, why are you crying? That does not help, right? Telling her that your love for her is better than 10 sons when she doesn't even have one, that does not help either, right? This is a desperately sad, broken family, unhappy, and they are stuck. They can't move forward and they can't move back. It just keeps spiraling out of control. Every year there's more children on one side, no children on the other side. The insecurity goes up. See, Elkanah can't fix Hannah's infertility. He also can't fix Penina's insecurity. Hannah's infertile, Penina's insecure. He can't fix the destructive interactions between his two wives because he's responsible for having two wives, right? Hannah needs what Elkanah can't provide, children. Penina needs what she can never have, 100% of Elkanah's heart, because he loves Hannah, right? There seems to be no solution. Do you know people like this? Yeah, do you? Don't tell me you looked in the mirror this morning. I mean those other people, right? We all get stuck in our circumstances from time to time, and we try and find human solutions to our problems. This family has gone round and round and round this problem for years, and it's only getting worse. And there doesn't seem to be any hope until verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh, so at the big celebration at the tabernacle, worshiping, worshiping, fighting, worshiping, like you do on Sunday mornings, right? 
Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Verse 10. And Hannah, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So this tabernacle at this point in time is nothing major. It's got a linen sort of a curtain around it. Uh, most people sat on the dirt, so Eli's at a position of elevation. He's actually sitting on a chair there, kind of looking things over at that point in time. Hannah is now going to go outside the family system. Human solutions have failed. Husband and two wives are not getting better, and Hannah takes her problem to God. God was the one who blessed her with the problem in the first place, right? Say yes. yes. So God is the one who's blessing you with your problem right now. Say yes. Okay, how you respond to that blessing will determine the outcome you get because conduct creates consequence. You get that? Conduct creates consequences. All right, here's the principle. Since you take your problems seriously, take your praying seriously. Hannah doesn't call her family therapist. She doesn't file for divorce. She doesn't call a girlfriend event. She doesn't buy a gun. She doesn't take a drink. She takes it to the Lord. That's a very good strategy. She doesn't blame God. She doesn't blame Penina, but she brings her pain to Almighty God because prayer recognizes that God's in control and we're dependent on him. By the way, this is not a head prayer. This is not a cool prayer. This is a heart prayer. This is a passionate prayer. She takes her prayer seriously because she takes her problem seriously. And most important, she takes her God seriously. So here's a question for you. How seriously do you take prayer? I'm not looking for an answer. I want you to reflect on it. I've got two sub-questions. On an average day, how many times do I talk with God? On an average day, how many times do I talk with God? Just think about it. Number two, if I have 16 hours a day of awake time, on average, how many minutes of those 16 hours am I talking with God or listening to God? How seriously do we take prayer? I would suggest that we take prayer as seriously as the problem is. If there's a problem that you and I think we can fix, you know something? We don't pray about it. Because we think we got it dialed. Well, you look at Elkanah. You know, multiple marriages back then were pretty common. Bigamy, pretty common. It was the culturally acceptable solution. If you can't get pregnant with wife number one, take wife number two. That was culturally acceptable. You didn't have to pray about that. This is what, that was what people did. Well, we have all sorts of things like that now. We go, well, if you have a problem, just make a phone call. Text somebody. Call your attorney, whatever it happens to be. We do a lot of things before we'll pray. What did we talk about last week? John Bunyan said, there's a whole lot of stuff you can do after you pray, but you shouldn't do anything until you pray. That should be the first item of business. This family decides to pray after things are about disintegrated. Hannah's praying to the Lord. She made a vow and said, O Lord God of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant, underline that word, and remember me, and not forget thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, 
and a razor shall never come on his head. The Lord of hosts here means Lord of armies. This is the first time in scripture you ever see the phrase Lord of hosts. It's literally the Lord of armies, the, Lord, the, the earth's armies and heaven's armies, the angelic armies, the celestial armies of heaven. Literally, when you say the word Lord, it means master, master of everything, heaven and earth. If he's master of heaven and earth, is he the Lord of her womb? Do you have a problem that he's not Lord of? You know the answer to that. Here's the principle. Prayer is humbly entrusting my specific problem to God's loving purpose. Prayer is humbly entrusting my specific problem to God's loving purpose. It's very easy just to ask God to fix the problem. It's another thing to say, Lord, I commit this problem to your purpose. Whatever it is you want to do with this problem and with me in the process, that's what I want. And if it's your will, if your purpose is going to be served best for all eternity by having me live with this problem, I'm okay with that. Most of us are going, Lord, I know you love me and I know you want me to be happy and comfortable and therefore, of course, you'll take this problem away immediately. He has eternal purpose far beyond this life. We're going to see that. Prayer is humbly entrusting my specific problem to God's living purpose. Now, this is a very specific request. This is not a God bless everywhere, everyone, all the time prayer. Some people's prayers are so general that when God answers it, you don't even know it. Oh, God, make the sun rise tomorrow. Well, yeah, right, okay. I mean, that's going to happen, right? When you pray to give birth to a son, you will know it when God answers it. Amen? For those of you who have given birth, you understand that. Hannah greatly humbled herself before God. How many times does she call herself a maidservant? In one verse. She actually calls herself five times in this chapter. She asks for a son. Anything wrong with that? Nope. Why does she ask for the son? So I can give him back to the Lord. I want you to think about this. This is a woman whose heart has been broken for years with no child. She's asking for a son for the glory of God, not just for herself. It's not a selfish prayer. It's a prayer that would honor God. She vowed to give her son back to the Lord in exchange for the privilege of having him in the first place. And she's basically dedicating him in a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow literally meant I'm dedicating my child. You can take a Nazarite vow yourself, by the way to God's service for your life. Two of the most famous, I guess, well-known Nazarites would be Samson, right? Samson, obviously one of them at that point in time. There are three, basically three commitments. A Nazarite could not cut their hair, could not touch alcohol, and could not touch a dead body. This is like you praying today that God will call your child into overseas missionary service for the rest of their life even if it means you don't see them very often, even if it means their life's in danger, even if it means they could be killed. You want God to get glory through the life of your child, regardless of the price tag. That's what she's praying. Because this was an expensive prayer, right? 
She said, I'm giving this child back, right? You know how old Samuel was when she gave him back? Less than three. They weaned their children, usually between two and three years old. That's an expensive prayer. She saw him once a year. It's an expensive prayer. Verse 12. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. Eli, by the way, translates exalted in the Lord. Exalted in the Lord. Now he was the high priest. But these days he was living pretty low. His two sons were priests. They were deep in sin. They were committing fornication with the women that helped in the temple. They were stealing sacrifices, etc., etc. And Eli refused to rebuke them. But according to the Mosaic law, he should have had them stoned with rocks. But he didn't. He didn't even remove them from office. He didn't rebuke them or remove them. So he's living pretty low. And Hannah is a prayer warrior. Here's the principle. Don't stop praying until you get an answer. I think sometimes, and we talked a little bit about this last week, we pray until we get tired of asking. Right? We're going, God, I've given you the same old prayer, blah, 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 for six months. I, I think I'm done. I'm tired of saying the same thing. You obviously are not hearing. We quit. Don't we? She continued praying before the Lord. It's so easy to quit. It's so easy to quit. Matthew 7, 7. Jesus promises, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks find, he who knocks shall be opened. The Greek tense of the word says, Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. You don't just ask once, oh God, my son, my daughter, my grandchild, my spouse, blah, blah, they need you. Oh, well, God, since you're sovereign, I've, told, I've asked you once, I don't need to do it anymore. He heard you the first time, but he wants you to keep coming, keep bringing it to him, right? I think sometimes God makes us wait to show us how much we really want it, Right? How often are you going to come to the Lord? This woman is coming with tears, with passion. She's wanted the son for years. She never quit. She wants a son not for herself. What she wants is a prophet for Israel. The prayer goes beyond herself. That's pretty good. When you start asking God for something, what are you asking for? When you ask God to solve a problem, do you ask him that he will receive glory in the solution of your problem? If God can't receive glory in solving my problem, then maybe he shouldn't solve my problem. Why would he solve a problem that doesn't bring him glory? Now, that's, see, that's a part of sacrifice on our part. God, I need this, and it's my prayer that you will use your solution for this problem to bring glory to yourself. That cuts ice. Verse 13, as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, so Eli thought she was drunk. See, most people in that era prayed out loud. When you were in the tabernacle, you prayed out loud. If you've ever been to Israel, you hear out loud praying, right? Hannah was praying in her heart, but she was mouthing the words. 
John Bunyan once said, it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. And I know you've listened to people pray and you go, it's just words. I belong to a civic organization, Downtown Rotary. And there are some believers in there and there are some people that are not believers. And when they pray, when, not, when the people that don't know Jesus pray, it's pretty clear they don't expect anybody who's listening on the other end. It's real clear that they don't think anybody's on the other end. It's just a prayer, but it's really words for you, the audience. On the other hand, when a believer prays, they talk like there's somebody on the other end because they know who's on the other end, Almighty God. That's how we need to be praying. But Eli, he completely misunderstands the situation. Apparently, there's not been much passionate praying in this tabernacle lately, and there might have been too much drinking because he thinks she's drunk. Verse 14, Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. So Eli is like our old friend Peter, opens mouth, inserts foot, opens mouth again, inserts the other foot, right? He interrupts her prayers with an accusation, unfounded. It tells you you can't discern the difference between passionate prayer and drinking. It also tells us how much of our praying is cool, right? You ever pray passionately? You ever get on your face and beat the floor? I'm not saying that go to the extremes. I grew up in a culture, a Dutch Reformed culture, where if you raised your hand at church, man, they thought, they didn't think you had the spirit. They thought you should be taken away in a straitjacket because you just didn't express yourself that way. It was a very just, you know, controlled culture. I'm not saying there's one way or another to pray. I'm saying this woman is all in with God. All in. Hannah answered, verse 15. No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before God. You can underline that. There are some times in life, friends, that he is the only one you can talk to. As a matter of fact, on the really important stuff, he is the only one. Old song, no one understands like Jesus. I think the Lord wants us to be honest with him. When the Lord asks you, how's it going? And you say, it's all good, man, I'm just good. <laughs> really? Pour your soul out. Tell him like it is. He knows. She tells Eli, do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman. That's a daughter of Belial, a daughter of Satan. For I have spoken now out of my great concern and provocation. So she doesn't attack Eli, she did, even though he's off the wall. She responds with great grace, great humility, explaining her behavior. She tells him that the passion he hears is not out of control drinking, it's passionate prayer because she's brokenhearted before the Lord. Verse 17, then Eli answered and said, go in peace and may the God of grace grant your petition that you have asked him. So to his credit, Eli understands that she's actually talked to the Lord. He blesses her request, verse 18. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. That's the fourth time we hear maidservant. So the woman away, went her way and ate. And what are the last six, seven words of your translation? And her face was no longer sad. There's a real important truth in there. When she finished praying, she was no longer sad. And she got her appetite back. And you're going, oh, she's still not pregnant. All the circumstances still are rotten, right? Penina's still a witch. I mean, this is not, nothing's improved. 
externally. Nothing has changed in her circumstances. But her face is no longer sad. Wow. Do you look any different after you've been in God's presence than you did before you got into God's presence? Does prayer make a difference in your outlook? Moses spent 40 days on the mountain with God. When he came down, man, his face glowed because he'd been in the presence of God. When Peter was preaching in Acts, we found out a few months ago, they said they took note that he sounded like he'd been with Jesus. You know? So when you go into God's presence, does it make a difference? She brought her sorrow to God. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. You want a pretty good verse? Here's a good one. Be anxious for nothing. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. It says, be anxious for nothing. Anxiety is a lack of trust in God. And I say that with great conviction. My whole family does anxiety really well. We don't do depression, but man, we can really do anxiety. I kid you not. My whole family, man, we can spin high-speed wobble faster than you can shake a stick. It's part of the bloodstream, right? Be anxious for nothing, but it's still a sin for Brad to worry because I'm not trusting. But in everything, you can underline that one. That's a good word. Not just in some things, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. That means you thank God for the problem and his solutions. Let your requests, I love that plural, I got a lot of them, be made known to God. Verse 7, when you do that, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, so guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's the principle. Prayer allows you to exchange your problems for God's peace. Prayer allows you. It doesn't say you'll do it. It's still a choice. But allows you to exchange your problems for God's peace. See, because she trusted God, she brought her request, she brought her sorrow, she brought her brokenness, she brought her worry, she brought Penina and Elkanah and all the children in the mess, and she left her problem with God. And that's what we don't do so often. You know what we do? We give God our problem in prayer, and just before we say, in Jesus' name, we snatch it back out of God's hands, and we put it on our back, and we haul it out again and go, God, I know you're good, but this problem only I can deal with. This problem is so big, I've got to take it with me. So you leave your prayer closet, and nothing has changed because you didn't leave anything with him. You took it all back. You ever done that? Yes, ma'am. We're going to get to that. You're absolutely right. That's next week. <laughs> I, I was going to do both chapters, but I ran out of time for this. So she lays it down and doesn't take it back. And I think we really, really, really... You know, here, here's why we don't do that. If we leave the problem with God, who's in charge of the problem? God. Who's going to solve it his way? Who's going to solve it his time? Who's in control? Who's not in control? We don't like that. We don't like that. One of the reasons we don't give our problems to God is then we're not in control anymore and we like to be in control. Even if it's going to kill us, we want to be in control. This family's trying to solve this thing for years and years and years and years and years. And I'm a control freak. 
So this is talking to me, right? Not just you, Deb, me. I mean, I'm at the head of that line, right? So when you trade your problems in for God's peace, you have to leave them. And I know during the day, Satan's going to tempt you with doubt and say, you need to go back and take that problem back from God because he's obviously not doing anything about it, right? Since God's not doing anything about it, by gum, I'm going to. And then we're back to our first point. Prayerless solutions create bigger problems. So we have to give God his time, his way, his space to solve them. Let's review. Principle number one. Prayerless solutions usually create bigger problems. So the very first thing you do is pray, not the very last thing. You know when we pray, usually after we've made a bigger mess, then we start to pray. Pray first, pray first, pray first, pray first. Now in Brad Hannock's case, that means I should pray before I open my mouth. Because I can dig a hole so deep, so quick with my tongue. Pray first. Number two. God has eternal purpose and personal blessing in every problem that he permits you to experience. So every problem you now have, every problem God has purpose in. I didn't say you'd understand it. I did say he has it because he makes no mistakes. And he has a blessing for you in that problem. He has multiple blessings. We're going to trust him with that, aren't we? Number three. Since you take your problem seriously, take your praying seriously. If the problem is big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about, huh? Huh? Yes, okay. Number four, prayer is humbly entrusting my specific problem to God's loving purpose. Tom, do you have the prayer request? We're gonna talk about this. Prayer is humbly entrusting. You have all the prayer requests, good. Don't stop praying until you get an answer. I didn't say your answer. God's answer may not be yours. Don't stop praying until you get an answer. And it may be no, it may be wait, it may be yes, right? And the last one, prayer allows you to exchange your problems for God's peace. Wow, this is very convicting to me. Because I'm telling you what God says, I'm not telling you that I always practice this. By God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do this, okay? Now that you know, do. Love you guys.